Well, it is good as always to be with you in worship at Providence Reformed Church, and we will take up where we left off on August 13th. I feel a little bit like John Calvin after coming back from three years in Strasbourg, returning to his church in Geneva and taking up with the next passage in Romans. <laughs> hasn't been quite that long, but nonetheless, it's been a real honor to preach for you and to examine the previous 15 psalms and to be able to take up with Psalm 16 today. Let us remember as we read this that this is the word of the true and living God, Psalm 16, a miktam of David. Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. As for the saints who are in the land, they are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. I will not pour out their libations of blood or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. God's truth before all times has firmly stood and shall from age to age endure. Let's again turn our hearts to him in prayer. Lord, what a privilege to be here today as opposed to apart from your people and not in your sanctuary. We profess with the psalmist that we are glad to be in your house. We are thankful for your word. We are thankful for you not having left us in darkness, but you've revealed to us through this glorious, special revelation we know as the Bible, who you are and who we are and what is required that we may be reconciled to you. We are grateful that Jesus is that one who has given himself to satisfy divine justice, to remove our sins from us, and to reconcile us to you. And so we ask for his sake that as we attend to your word that you would sanctify us by the truth of it and help us to understand and to walk before you as becomes those who profess King Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen. No doubt you have heard the phrase over the years, and you might have even employed it yourself a few times if you're in conversation with someone, particularly a person you haven't seen for a while and you're catching up, and they or you are enumerating things in your life that cause you at the end of the conversation to say, yes, uh, life is good. Maybe a marriage going particularly well, 
maybe success at employment, maybe you're making a lot of money, maybe you're traveling the world, maybe your children are bringing you a lot of pride through academic and or athletic success. Everything is lined up exactly as you hoped it would. You have no reason to complain. You've got everything you want, and you say with this refreshing, satisfied look on your face and sound in your voice, yes, life is good. I suppose we all envision the good life in some way or another, the things that we would like to have so that we might make such a statement. Well, Psalm 16, I suggest to you, is the king of Israel showing us in the midst of his life what the true good life looks like. And very simply put, the good life is the God life. That is, the life that can be assessed as good is the life that is connected to the goodness that God is holy. That the goodness of God permeates every aspect of your life. Not removing difficulty, but on the contrary, being with you in the midst of it and appropriating goodness to you out of who He is. This is a psalm in which David is stepping back a bit and simply through praise in this great song, assessing the goodness of God and how it is that because He is God's and God is His. His life, irrespective of circumstances, is good. This psalm does not have quite the air of alarm that we've seen in in some of the others. He's not so much here surveying the potential harm that men can bring, but the sure presence guaranteeing a help that God will bring. This is a miktam. You'll notice at the the top of the psalm. This is the first of six miktams in the Psalter. Psalm 16 and Psalms 56 through 60. Psalm 16 and Psalm 58, however, lack specific details that clue us in as to precisely what it is driving David to desire that these words be inscribed somehow. And that's really what a michtam is. It's mysterious beyond that. We can really only understand it in terms of it being a, a desired or a wanted inscription. This is coming from David's heart, and he's longing to have what he says here, what he professes, engraved somewhere much as you would give a loved one a ring with engravings of special contents on the inside, or young lovers would carve their initials in an oak tree. Uh, We want this to have a, a permanence. I want this to stick. I want the things that I'm saying here to be irremovably impressed upon those who receive these words. And very simply, I would say the theme verse of the psalm in terms of a title would be found in verse 2b. Apart from you, I have no good thing. That's what David desires to carve in all of our hearts. And you say, well, how could David make such a profession? I mean, look at what he's been through as a result of both the sins of himself and others. But he pivots here in the midst of the impact of the fall in this life, the reality that 
fallenness, the sinful condition, presses down upon him in every area of life as it does us. We feel it on a daily basis. He turns and he resets his focus upon all reality via the lens of the goodness of the Lord and the giver of life. Apart from you, I have no good thing. That glorious reality is still the case. It would preach in David's day and it will preach in ours. And that's why in my four points I've included the word still. This is my outline of the psalm. First in verses 1 and 2, we have where sanctuary is still found. In verses 3 and 4a, we are reminded where sorrow is still realized. Thirdly, in verses 4b through 6, we come to the place where satisfaction is still experienced. And then finally, in verses 7 through 11, we find how salvation is still declared. That is, how is it that the very basics and the fundamentals of God's goodness to men redemptively are made known, are broadcast, are heralded, are presented to all men everywhere? Well, first of all, in verses 1 and 2, we begin with where sanctuary is still found. Refuge is still found in the Lord Himself. That hasn't been altered at all for David. He believes that at this juncture, more than he ever has, I would say, he, he prays, as it were, at the beginning, Keep me safe, O God. Protect me or watch over me, because I am seeking such in You. Take refuge. That's an expression we saw at the beginning of Psalm 7, verse 1. We saw it again at the beginning of Psalm 11, the first verse. We've become accustomed to this with David. We're used to seeing him seek safety for his soul in all that God is. And his particular use of El here, that we translate, O God, indicates that David views God and knows God as the Almighty One, the One who is able to do all things good. And so he states emphatically, you are my Lord, and apart from you I have no good thing. A literal translation in the Hebrew for verse 2b might read something like this, there would be nothing good find out beyond you, O God, as if I were to pass you and look for goodness, I wouldn't find it there. I can't find anything good anywhere but in you, and that is the location of soul safety for me. I come into you from out of the storms of life in this sin-laden creation because there's no other place, there's no other haven in which to find rest for my soul. This is why Jesus invites all who, are, who labor and are heavy laden to cast their burdens off onto Him and to find that His yoke is easy and His burden is light. Even as we must preach the Gospel to ourselves daily, we must begin our profession of that Gospel with this built-in Davidic exhortation via His example here to confess God as our ultimate protector from all that threatens us even death itself. And this doesn't change from circumstance to circumstance, praise God. This doesn't change from age to age. It was the case in David's day and is in ours as well. Stephen Charnock, I believe, the 17th century English Puritan, has captured this notion quite well when he writes, God is a perpetual refuge and security to His people. His providence is not confined to one generation, 
It is not one age only that tastes of his bounty and compassion. His eye never yet slept, nor hath he suffered the little ship of his church to be swallowed up, though it hath been tossed about upon the waves. Isn't it interesting that 400 years ago, a wise man like Charnock saw the church as small as little. In a strange way, that makes me feel better. He hath always been a haven to preserve us, he continues, a house to secure us. He hath always had compassion to pity us and power to protect us. He hath had a face to shine when the world hath had an angry countenance to frown. In all generations, he is a dwelling place to secure his people here or entertain them in heaven. God's graciousness to David and that good life that he recounts in this psalm has its basis on the consistency of God's goodness. As Charnock says, he is a dwelling place to secure his people here or to entertain them in heaven. And that that's a preview, if you will, of the present aspect of God's goodness and the way in which he assigns joy and eternal pleasures to his own that we find in verse 11. We'll get there in a moment. But that sets the stage as David works toward that. David's good life psalm begins with the perpetuity of the fact that God is the tower for His people. He always has been. He always will be. And therein really lies the foolishness of having any other God before Him. Which leads to our second point. That place where sorrow is still realized. He gives us beginning in verse 3 and continuing into verse 4a, what the problem will be if one's profession is not that you are anchored to God and you are awash in His goodness. Now the Hebrew gets a little complicated here, but basically what David is doing is this. He's moving from satisfaction in God to the broader pleasure that he takes in the people of God. Verse 3, As for the saints who are in the land, that is, those his fellow Israelites, those who are also in covenant relationship with God, comprising the nation of Israel, those whom he is king over, they're glorious ones in whom is all his delight. So he delights in his God, and by natural extension from that is a delight or a pleasure in the people of God. It's a foreshadowing of what Jesus would require, that we love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength and His new commandment like unto it, that we love our neighbors as ourselves, that we love one another. Uh, That is the Davidic indication here of the fact that he doesn't turn to idols, but he in fact loves the true and living God and serves Him. Why? Because he takes glory in the ones who belong to the glorious God. Some translations say excellent, but I prefer the NIV's glorious because it gets at the very manifestation of God's glory itself. Jesus is assigned glory because He obeys the Father. And what is that glory that He redeems for Himself a people to the glory of God the Father? And He will one day bring them to Himself. Just as Jesus says in John 17.24, He desires that those for whom He is dying be with Him wherever He is so that they may see His glory that the Father has given 
to Him. He delights in the glorious ones that He sees precisely because there is one coming after Him who redeems them. And therein lies His glory. And that is a glory that He will share with them in the eternal kingdom. That's why we refer to life in the hereafter as glorification, the absence of sin, and the assignment of every good and perfect thing that we need to be in fellowship and in the very presence of God. But what happens? You see, even among those, verse 4, the sorrows of those, that is, some of those from out of the group of God's own. And it's interesting that he refers to them as saints, holy ones. We don't often associate the term saint with the Old Testament. We think of it more in the New Testament, in the writings of Paul, etc. But here he is indicating that these glorious ones in whom is the totality of his delight, they will multiply their pains. How? By running after other gods. And you see, that was and still is the place where sorrow begins, where it is born, turning away from the God of gods and to other gods who cannot satisfy who cannot grant redemption, who cannot give joy, who have no goodness to offer. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? It sounds like Romans chapter 1 in which Paul speaks of those who became fools in verse 25 and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men. You swap out God for false gods and your pain and your suffering and your sorrow just metastasizes like a cancer. And there's no goodness in that life. There's only the statement, life is so bad. If you haven't read it, I would recommend to you John Piper's Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. In the first chapter, he, he deals with this principle in Romans 1 that I believe... David is pointing toward here in in Psalm 16. Piper writes, We were made to know and treasure the glory of God above all things, and when we trade that treasure for images, everything is disordered. The sun of God's glory was made to shine at the center of the solar system of our soul, and when it does, all the planets of our lives are held in their proper orbit. But when the sun is displaced, everything flies apart. The healing of the soul begins by restoring the glory of God to its flaming, all-attracting place at the center. We are all starved for the glory of God, not self. No one goes to the Grand Canyon to increase self-esteem. Why do we go? Because there is greater healing for the soul in beholding the splendor that there is than there is in beholding the self. Indeed, what more could be What could be more ludicrous in a vast and glorious universe like this than a human being on the speck known as earth standing in front of a mirror trying to find significance in his own self-image? It is great sadness that this gospel is that of the modern world, but it is not the Christian gospel. It is the darkness of petty self-preoccupation shining the light has shown the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. In the darkness, 
into that darkness, God has shown the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The Christian gospel is about the glory of Christ, not about me. And when it is in some measure about me, it is not about my being made much of by God, but about God mercifully enabling me to enjoy making much of Him forever. And so he begins with this great profession. And then he extends a glimpse to the great problem to his reader, to his hearer. And he draws a contrast there. And he warns, apart from God, there is nothing but what the world would know as badness, not goodness. This is the Davidic essence of the good life. It's the God life. The life lived knowing that there is no good thing out beyond God. And if your profession is not that of verses 1 through 3, your problem will be that of verse 4a, and it will only get worse. Thirdly, then, we come to a refreshing option, the only one, uh, when we come upon this third timeless truth, and that is the place where satisfaction is still experienced. Principally in verses 5 through 6, David teaches us where that is, but I've included verse 4b with that section because I think it's necessary to have verse 4b as a kind of backdrop to set off the all-sufficiency that God is in both who He is and what He does as we read in verses 5 and 6. He sees the sorrow. He sees the exponential pain of those who run to other gods. But he declares, verse 4b, I will not pour out their libations of blood or take up their names on my lips. Not only will I not pour out these bloody drink offerings, but I'm not even going to state the names of these pagan gods. How dare I? And then he turns, verse 5, Lord, You have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. He turns back to his good God who has given him everything that he needs. His portion, probably his daily bread, he's thinking there. His cup, his food, and his drink. And not only so, but he's made the entirety of his life safe. Everything that David experiences is good for him. He's not only satisfied with the God who meets his needs but the God who manages His circumstances. It's not only the provision of God, but the wider providence that is that provision's greater framework as it comes to Him from God. He's satisfied with all that God is and everything that God does for Him. Verse 6b, Surely I have a delightful inheritance. And this inheritance is not houses and riches as they come from fathers, but this is possessions that are His in the present. All that I have now. And He's satisfied with that. He delights in it. And isn't verse 6a beautiful? The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. This is an indication of the love that's already been expressed in Psalm 1. The blessed man in verse 2 is the one who meditates upon the law of God day and night. 
The one who, just a few psalms from now in Psalm 19, will have a lengthy section extolling the beauty and the need and the purpose of the law of God. And when he says, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, he's saying, I like your limits. Your demarcations that are good for me are sweet. I I like where you've drawn the lines, God. Can you say that? When you think about or worry about the future or bemoan what you don't have. And here is the King of Israel who's saying, these limitations... The very designations that would seem to the world to be limits, they are beautiful to me. There is an exquisite loveliness to the boundaries that you've set. Oh, there and there alone is where satisfaction is still experienced for the soul of man. I've been teaching my church history students at the California Graduate School of Theology the last couple of weeks we've been dealing with Calvin John Calvin's life and it's it's been really great to go back and to have an in-depth review of this man's life and I've been struck by how it is with all the controversy and all the hard work that he did all of the difficult things surrounding his name and history It's remarkable to look at how he both preached and lived that the Christian ought to be satisfied with his lot, that he ought to gladly and rejoicingly accept the circumstances in which he finds himself and be content there and serve God out of that and find great joy in that. That is something, beloved, of which we have to constantly remind ourselves in a culture that screams at us to get more, do more, work harder, make more of a name for yourself. Can't we just delight in things the way they are, knowing that in every circumstance, in every set of our existence, every scenario, every condition, every experience, God's divine intent is to show us and to lavish upon us His goodness that we may see His glory. Be satisfied with what you have, but not only so, not in some minimal way, but delight in it. Take delight in the possessions that He bestows and see the lines that He's drawn, the boundaries that He's set has fallen in the loveliest of places. Well then, fourthly and finally, we have in verses 7 through 11 how salvation is still declared. How salvation is still declared. How is it that God makes known to men His will for their moving beyond life and to death and having the benefits of His goodness accrue to them in the present? be a reality in their circumstances today. Now, there are four sub-points that I have under this final point. So hang in there with me. First of all, in verses 7 and 8, we have how salvation is still declared in that it is known by the whole counsel of God's 
word. It's as if he, he's closing out a sermon by commencing to sing a, another hymn, if you will. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night my heart instructs me. He's offering worship to God. Why? Because he's been the recipient of God's goodness. How? In essence, through the Word of God, through God's self-disclosure, through the way in which He's made Himself known. That is His counsel that continues to come to David. And again, there's proof here that he has meditated upon His Word day and night. It's proof then that he's followed the instructions of the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 and following, particularly in verse 7, where it says that they are to walk by the way and to sit and to lie down and to wake up and to contemplate the law of God and have the Word of God upon everything in their existence so that even when it is dark outside, even when night falls, that time where things seem to bother us the most, out of the depths of your being that have drunk in that counsel, there will be instruction. And that instruction, in turn, will give you peace. And he expresses all of this, having the counsel of God, that is the Word spoken, the Word handed down through tradition, the Word preserved. I have set the Lord always before me. I've taken all that God is and the totality of His goodness and I've set it before me. He's looking at no other thing than the Lord's counsel. And because He is in that position, I will not be, sake, be, be forsaken or be shaken. I will have Him on my right hand. This is the language we run into again in Psalm 109, Psalm 121. It's the position of the one who grants aid. That's the terminology at this juncture in David's life that he employs. The Lord's before him via His counsel. And He's right there by Him. It's as if God is His staff and He will not be shaken. Just as He will not be shaken at the end of verse Psalm 15 as the one who responds to God's favor is characterized by the things that we saw there that entail godly character. Won't be shaken there. Won't be shaken because of God's Word and instruction constantly before Him. His counsel, His wisdom, and the whole of all that God is that we know to be, in essence, His goodness. You won't be shaken, won't be loosened, won't be rattled out of place. You won't come apart from that to which you are affixed. And that's where good preaching of truth begins, not where it ends. This is why we can see at verse 7 and continuing through verse 11, it's as if it's a separate section. It begins with the whole counsel that we know to be the Word of God. Like many of you, um, I'm sure, I have in recent days been reflecting upon the uh, incredible life and legacy of Billy Graham. And there are so many stories that are in his nearly century life. Died nine months shy of 100. And I was thinking the other day back to, to one of those accounts that really drives this point home. He wanted at some point or was thinking about attending seminary. You know, he was raised Presbyterian, and the Presbyterians wouldn't ordain him without a seminary education. That's why he was ordained as a Baptist. But at one point he was talking early on before his ministry really took off to Dr. John Mackay, who was the president of Princeton Seminary from 1936 to 1959. And Dr. Mackay, and this is remarkable for a seminary president, said, Billy, don't come here. Don't come to Princeton. 
That would be a mistake. Instead, he gave him about seven books to read on the Scriptures, on uh, the topics that morphed into uh, inerrancy and the inerrancy debate that came to a head in the in the 1970s and was finalized with the 1978 Chicago Statement on Inerrancy. But he opted not to go to Princeton and read those books, and he saw Dr. Mackay years later, and he, he thanked him. He said, your, your counsel was right. I'm glad I didn't come to Princeton. When he was a young, budding evangelist, Billy Graham had a friend named Charles Templeton, and Chuck Templeton went another way. He became a liberal and later professed atheism. <clears throat> and because of his observance of Chuck Templeton's struggle, late 40s, early 50s, when liberalism had gained ground in America, the young Billy Graham was rather confused. And the story is told of the time when he had visited the Forest Home Retreat Center down in Ventura County, after he had met Henrietta Mears, who was Director of Christian Education at Hollywood Presbyterian Church, and he was really grappling with this. He, he was really struggling with this. And you go there, and there's a line of trees in the back, and there's a stump there, and I'm told there's a plaque on that stump to this day. I, I haven't seen it, but Billy Graham went there, he retreated to there, and he opened his Bible, and he put it on that stump, and he cried out to God and confessed his confusion and his uncertainty, but he declared right then and there, I commit to your word, O Lord. I believe it. I accept it. And I will preach it. I don't understand it all, but, but I commit to it. And that's when things really began to take off. And, and think back over your lifetime. How many films have you seen? How many documentaries? And how many times do you see Billy Graham preaching somewhere the Bible says, the Word of God says, thank God for that forest home experience. That's where it all begins, you see, a commitment to the whole counsel of God's Word. And as that counsel comes to you through the ups and downs during the day and even when night falls, you pull it out of your heart and it instructs you and it comforts you. Well, the second way in which salvation is still declared, along with the whole counsel of God's Word, is through the whole being of God's servant. Look in verse 9 and verse 10a. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. And I like the way the ESV translate that. translates that. It has tongue in the NIV. It says whole being. That's actually the idea. The tongue professes what's in the heart, which is the seat of the entire being. So it's the same concept. But he, from his heart and his tongue, it's, it's as if it's a repetition there in the Hebrew, I bring every part of my being, my soul, but not only so, verse 9 my body also will rest secure. In other words, I praise God because His goodness that I enjoy, the salvation that I have in Him, it saves my soul, but it comes all the way to the body. All of me. Not just my soul, but all of me will know the fruits of redemption and will benefit from God's work in me. You won't abandon me to the grave or Sheol 
Notice the comprehensiveness of the being that God uh, saves uh, and grants security to. He, he's glad in his heart and praise. In other words, not only his soul, but the very depths of his being. And this comes through in his singing. What he enjoys from his God won't leave him or forsake him when his body lies silent in the grave. Salvation entails the whole of his being. And so again, here we get a preview of the reality that the greater David brings to pass, that our souls at death do immediately pass into glory and our bodies still lying silent in the grave and still being united to Christ do rest there until the resurrection. And they come out and they too know something of the goodness of God for all eternity. So you see, he's looking there for the blessing to the body. And why will that be the case? That leads to the third subpoint: The whole power in God's Son. The whole power in God's Son. He turns the corner in verse 10b. Nor will you let your Holy One see decay. Now, Holy One is not a title that's different from his others that he's assigning to himself. The Holy One here is the one who is coming through his line, who is his descendant. With the exception, perhaps, of Psalm 2.12, this is probably the most distinctly messianic portion of a psalm that we've run into thus far in our study of the Psalter. And did you know, this is fascinating, but Psalm 16 is quoted by both Peter at Pentecost in Acts 2 and by Paul at Pisidian Antioch in Acts 13. They both cite this. The two greatest preachers, I suppose you could say, in the New Testament, at least as those recorded in Acts chapter 2, toward the men of Israel, Peter speaks these words. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope. It's interesting how he changes it there a little bit, expresses it differently. Because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with the joy of your presence. He gives us the whole last section there of Psalm 16. And then he declared to them, Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of Christ. How much clearer can it be? And then Paul, to a listening audience inclusive of both Jews and Gentiles, brothers, Acts 13, verse 26, Children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation 
has been sent. And he goes on and he describes the various aspects of the things that God has done. We tell you the good news, verse 32, what God promised our fathers, He has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have become your father. Verse 34 of Acts 13, the fact that God raised Him from the dead, never to decay, is stated in these words. And then he quotes Isaiah 55.3, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David, so it is stated elsewhere, and he cites Psalm 16.10, you will not let your holy one see decay. So there's the real hope of David in the goodness of God. The whole power in God's Son that he knew that he had a descendant. One coming through the Davidic genealogy. The Lord Jesus Christ born at one time in the city of David in Bethlehem. Born to men. Born for the express purpose of them, even their bodies resting secure because His body would not decay. The grave would receive Him, but would not hold Him. He as the Holy One would not see decay and would deliver His own from that same decay. The whole power in God's Son as it was true in David's day, as he foresaw it, as it is true in ours as we look back. The greater David says in John 10.18, I have the power to lay down my life and the power to take it up again. And we have seen that happen. That is historical fact. And that is the hope to which David points those who hear him here. But then finally... We have the whole span of God's blessings. Verse 11, when you unpack it, causes you to see that the blessings of God and the joy that He can bestow via His presence is something that is is not just off out in the future. There is a not yet aspect to it, but there's an already aspect to it as well. That's why I prefer the word uh, lasting pleasures in verse 11b as opposed to that of eternal because when we think of eternity we think of something that is yet to come that we have not been made recipients of at this juncture in our existence but lasting brings with it the idea that i believe is present here that we have it now and it lasts it it doesn't run out as we move through time and as we experience various hardships as we have joys and sorrows as we have ups and downs There are lasting pleasures at the right hand of God whom David has set at his right hand. And he draws from that. We need to see, if we're going to declare that life is good now, regardless of circumstances, that the goodness of God is present with us and is being extended to us now, if we are His, in the present Tripper Longman is one of my favorite Old Testament scholars. He's written extensively on the Psalms. He's also written extensively on Job. 
other parts of the wisdom literature. He teaches at, at Rosemont over in Santa Barbara, but he was at Westminster at one time. And he wrote an article entitled, When Life is Good. And it's actually a theological analysis and an indication of implications that come out of Job chapter 29. And you'll recall from your study of Job that in that chapter, Job is looking back as if he's pining over a period in his life that was far better than the current circumstances. And Dr. Longman in this article, When Life is Good, says all of us experience trouble in life. When life is good, it is pure delusion to think that it will last. Unless Jesus comes again, we will die, often preceded by a lengthy and painful illness. And before us, loved ones will die, parents, siblings, friends, perhaps even one's spouse or children. Life is full of difficulties. We should not forget this truth during periods of blessing. Otherwise, like Job, we ourselves are up for a horrible fall. Remembering the past just intensifies the pain. Our hope is not in a painless life on earth. After all, Paul tells Christians that they are an afflicted people. Indeed, Paul speaks of the necessity of sharing in the sufferings of Christ and thereby attaining to the resurrection from the dead. However, in their present affliction, they experience God's comfort. Paul, in spite of all his troubles, could still experience joy. And this is the whole span of God's blessings. It's the presence of God in whatever is happening to you, knowing that in those sufferings you are sharing in and thereby attaining to the resurrection of the greater Davidic descendant from the dead. And what we have to take away, my friends, from Psalm 16 is that if at any point you are going to say with authenticity, ah, life is good, and have that really be a true statement regarding your existence, you have to have the Lord set before you at your right hand, knowing that at His right hand, there are lasting gems of His goodness that don't just await you in the future, but by virtue of a genuine and vital union with the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen one, they are yours now. And anything short of that will never allow you to declare that life is good. But with that, you cannot but make such a declaration. Life is good because you belong to a good God. May God drive this home to us as we enter into this season where we work our way down to Resurrection Lord's Day and anticipate what He is going to do out of His vast and immeasurable goodness for His glory. Amen.
We're going to respond by the use of hymn 345. I love this hymn. It used to be the official hymn of Westminster Seminary that they would sing at their graduation ceremony. Glorious things of thee are spoken. He says in that final stanza, Fading is the worldling's pleasure, all his boasted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children No, how appropriate a parallel to what we have just seen. Let's stand and sing together.